Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello yet again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hey, Andrew. How are you going? Oh, I'm very well. How are you? Yes, yes I'm I'm surviving nicely, thank you. That's good to hear. Good to hear. <laughs> yes. Seems like only minutes since you told me that. <laughs> but um, anyway, let's uh, talk about this week's episode, uh, episode 159 of the Space Nuts podcast. We're going to uh, look at uh, a, a situation that I find quite surprising. But, you know, having worked in radio for 35 years or whatever it is, um, and, and radio is very common, radio waves are very common in the universe, but uh, now it's been discovered that there might be a ridge of uh, plasma emitting radio waves connecting two galaxy clusters, which just sounds mind-boggling. Uh, when you consider that um, the limit of uh, radio signal in space is 50 light years or something. So this this is rather fascinating. Uh, we will also uh, knock off a couple of uh, questions in uh, what is yet another shortened version of our podcast. Uh, we're going to look at uh, a question about dark matter pushback from Dr. Robert Scott. Thank you, Robert. And uh, Kevin Rutherford's uh, asked us uh, about the Michelson-Morley experiment. Could be the Michelson-Morley experiment, depending on how you pronounce his name. But um, it looks like uh, Kevin's detected there could be a contradiction in uh, that experiment. Uh, and, well, well, we'll investigate that. Might take a little bit of work to figure that one out. But first, Fred, uh, let's look at these, um, these radio waves uh, that uh, seem to be um, sort of working between these two galaxy clusters. Sounds rather fascinating. It does indeed, and it's uh, it's something that's been suspected for decades, actually, that we would find something like this. Um, and it probably means we will eventually find a lot more of these. Uh, so what's happened is that two uh, clusters of galaxies, uh, and of course galaxies are these huge aggregations of stars and gas and dust, one of which we live in, called the Milky Way galaxy. Um, but we know that galaxies come in clusters Two of them, uh, which have been uh, studied in detail, have shown uh, an interesting thing between them. These two galaxy clusters are uh, they're, they're, they're not close together. They're, they're, you know, they are relatively close together on the sky. But when you look at the scale that you're talking about, this is millions of light years apart uh, that they are. Um, it's maybe a little bit unexpected that you'd find... 
a bridge of material between them. Uh, but clearly people have been expecting this because <clears throat> astrophysicists have been looking for it. So the two galaxies rejoice in the name of Abel 0399 and Abel 0401. And you might notice those numbers are only two apart, which tells you that these two clusters are next to one another. Mm -hmm. Galaxy clusters, by the way, are usually uh, they usually have the name Abel in front of them because they were catalogued by an astronomer called George Abel. Uh, who did a lot of his work in the 1980s. I actually knew him. He spent some time in Edinburgh at the Royal Observatory where I was working because he wanted to use some of the photographic material that we had to identify his um, his galaxy clusters. He was a delightful man. He's no longer with us, but it's nice to see his name cropping up every time you talk about galaxy clusters. So Abel 399 and Abel 401 are these two galaxies which may well be about to merge together. Uh, in other words, undergoing a collision. But what has been observed is a bridge of material between them. Uh, and it's it's plasma, as you said. It's, a, it's um, basically energised atoms. And the interesting thing about it, and I think this is why this has become such a big story, is that uh, to have a plasma like that, you need magnetic fields to to excite it. And so the ridge tells you that there is, there is magnetism connecting these two galaxy clusters. And that's a magnetic field over a very, very large distance. Yes. Um, they, so if you think about a bar magnet, you know, the kind of thing you might put in your pocket, this is something like that, but it's 10 million light years long. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and it's a it's the plasma. So it it feeds into um, trying to understand how magnetic fields originate, and in fact, that's what a, a lot of modern astrophysics is about. Where do magnetic fields come from? It's one of the reasons why Australia is involved with the Square Kilometre Array project, the the largest telescope in the world, which will be completed within the next decade um, in two places, one in Western Australia and uh, the other in uh, South Africa. Uh, SKA is the next big thing in radio astronomy, and they will certainly be using that facility to look for bridging magnetic fields between clusters of galaxies because um, uh, among its stated intentions, the stated aims of the SKA is understanding the origin of magnetism in the universe. Now, it wasn't the SKA that was used for these observations, but it was a sort of <clears throat> um, what you might call a distant cousin of the SKA, a thing called LOFAR. Uh, LOFAR is the Low Frequency Array. So it's a set of radio telescopes looking at low frequencies uh, from the universe. It's still, um, it's still the VHF band as far as we're concerned in terrestrial communications, but that's low frequency for, for astronomy. Uh, LOFAR is actually located in Europe. In fact, in several sites in Europe, I visited one of them uh, some years ago, which I think was at Nancy in, in northern France. Um, and it uh, it's like it looks like a just an array of poles stuck in the ground. It's not elegant dishes or anything like that. Lofar uh, only needs relatively simple antennas, uh, but there are many of them, uh, as indeed the SKA will be. The SKA will have 136,000 antennas shaped like small Christmas trees, or actually shaped like large Christmas trees, made out of bent coat hangers. That's what it looks like. <laughs> um, uh, but but it's very high-tech stuff. Just like uh, but one you of don't my need... old cars, by the sound of it. Yeah, that's right. It's probably got bits of old car in it as well. Um, I can tell you, actually, that when they make the prototype of that, um, they used uh, uh, to act as a base for 
uh, for each of these antennas, and there were several thousand antennas in the prototype model, the Pathfinder, they actually used um, concrete slabs uh, with holes in the middle, which they bought secondhand from the post office in the United <laughs> Kingdom uh, because they were, they were um, telephone manhole surrounds. You know, you have a manhole cover where you, 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 at the bottom of the hole you've got all these telephone cables <laughs> with a metal cover on it. Well, this, they've got a concrete surrounding. And somehow the square kilometre array people found a cheap deal <laughs> to buy a couple of thousand of these manhole That's covers. That's hilarious. Yeah, and that's what. They, so that was the base of their uh, the base of their prototype array. They had to change the design because they realised that for 136,000 of these things, it was going to get very expensive in yeah. second hand manholes. So they they thought of another way. Um, uh, the, but anyway, so that that will be what the low frequency square kilometre array component in Australia will look like. Uh, but LoFAR has. As you know, the one in Europe has essentially made this great breakthrough that we've found magnetic fields between clusters of galaxies. I'm sure the story will move on as the square kilometer array evolves. We might find that there are, there's a you know a web of magnetic fields connecting all galaxy clusters. That could be one of the discoveries that might be made, and that would play in directly play into trying to understand where magnetic fields come from. Yeah, well, so it to, opens up a question in my mind because, as I understand it, Abel 0399 and ABEL 0401 are merging yeah. and our galaxy is going to merge with the Andromeda galaxy. So one wonders if we'll start sort of exchanging these materials. It could be already it could be already happening, Andrew, um, because um, that will be something that probably from our vantage point will be very difficult to detect. Mm. Uh, I do have friends in the in the business, though, who are specialists on uh, on uh, cosmic magnetism, and I might ask them about it uh, because that's a really good point that maybe our galaxy and Andromeda, uh, which are closing on at a, at a speed of, I think it's around 200 kilometers per second, um, that uh, closing speed means that they're on a collision course. There may already be a bridge of material between them that uh, that links them in the way that we see these two galaxy clusters link. Really interesting comment. Yeah. Well done. Oh, thank you. You're writing astronomy papers. Not mm, they'd be stupid. very short, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think they'd qualify. But um, no, I only uh, so at two hundred kilometres per second merging rate, and yeah. and how long before the merger happens? Uh, it's about three and a half billion years. It really um, does let you know how big the space is yeah, between us. That's right. It? Yes, <laughs> that's right. It's extraordinary. It's quite a yeah. Mm. All right. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity, even if you're having nothing to hide? 
it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, before we get on to uh, today's questions, um, something's popped up in the news which is rather extraordinary. We've we've talked about space tourism and uh, the organisations, private organisations that are looking at uh, putting people into space, suborbital flight, that kind of thing. Um, you know, people get to experience for two hundred thousand dollars a pop or whatever it is. Uh, zero G for um, a short period of time and then glide back to Earth or get rocketed back to Earth or whatever. It depends on who they go with, I suppose. But now NASA's playing the game. Yeah, they are. That's right. Um, and I guess this, you can put it in context. The context is that um, the current uh, US government administration sees the private sector uh, essentially taking over the space station within the next decade or so. It may even be before that, might be within the next five years, that um, uh, NASA wants to open the station to private industry uh, and that they will eventually, private industry will take over the running of the, of the, of the space station uh, for whatever purposes might be deemed necessary. And one of those purposes could well be tourism. So this is a sort of opening gambit in the um, in the private sector for NASA to start, uh, you know, start opening up the possibility of space tourists now to ease the transition to the from the private sector to the commercial. Sorry, from the publicly owned sector to the commercial sector. So we've got um, the deal that uh, you can now buy. You can buy a. a holiday on the yeah. International Space Station, as you've been able to do before. And you and Mia. I spoke about this. Well, no, actually, the space station itself. So for about a decade um, during the early 2000s, a, a company called Space Adventures oh. broke, brokered a deal between uh, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, mm. and a few really wealthy people who wanted to go into space. Uh, because in those days... Um, as is now, actually, uh, well, no, in those days, while the shuttle was still flying, U.S. astronauts were ferried up and down to the space station with the shuttle. But cosmonauts went with a Soyuz spacecraft, which was a three-seater spacecraft, but only two were used. So Space Adventures did this deal where 
a passenger could fill the third seat. That's right. I think there were seven. I think there were seven takers for this. The, the lease that was paid, we know, was twenty million dollars for yeah. a few days on the space station, and it was probably more than double that for the most expensive one. The prices that are being quoted now, though, are a bit higher than that because um, the the ticket to get there it could be as much as fifty eight million US dollars, and this would come from uh, an, uh, one of the organizations that are going to be ferrying stuff up, most notably SpaceX, which is interesting. I would have thought the price would have come down because SpaceX, of course, reuse their boosters. And that means that um, their, their price per kilogram to get into orbit should be cheaper. Um, anyway, that's uh, the, the, the price that's being, uh, that's being paid. Um, and there is a daily rate for the space station of uh, 35,000 US dollars per night. And that probably includes a cup of tea in the morning as well. Uh, you kind of hope so. Yes. <laughs> yes, but you wouldn't be able to drink it like you normally would. No, you Yes, it spreads all over the place. You have to take it out of a plastic container or something. <laughs> With a straw. With a straw, yeah. Um, so, all right, that'll be interesting. I'm, I'm sure there'll be takers. Uh, I, I would yeah, love to will. be able to afford it. I, I think it'd be marvellous. Um, but you know what? Never going to happen. Now, let's move on to some questions. And this one comes from Dr. Rob Scott, who uh, resides on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And uh, no derogatory marks, remarks this time about the state of origin because it bit me in the face big time. Now, uh, he says, if gravity can interact with the fabric of space-time, gravitational waves, could dark matter just be a pushback from this fabric on matter? Uh, could this account for the high rotational speeds, some steadying force from the fabric of space allowing higher speeds of matter without galaxies breaking apart? Mm. It's, yeah, it's a nice idea uh, from Rob. And um, I think he's um, I think his thinking is 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 good. So uh, I suppose what you could do is you could say, OK, we've got we're faced with this problem. Uh, galaxies rotate um, faster than they should be able to stay together. Um, you know, you see a galaxy, you can measure its rotation, you can look at it and see how much mass you think is there. But it turns out that if that's all there is, then the thing should have flown apart. So there are two possible ways of dealing with that question. One is what is now the accepted standard version, that there is this material called dark matter, which envelops the galaxy, and it's the gravity of dark matter that holds the galaxy together. But there is another possible interpretation, which was suggested very early uh, in our understanding of dark matter, which is back in the 1980s, uh, Mordechai Milgram at, I think it's Tel Aviv University uh, in Israel, suggested that it could be that we've got our understanding of the way di uh, dynamical forces work. And he proposed something called MOND, which is Modified Newtonian Dynamics. Now, in a sense, that aligns with what Rob is suggesting, uh, that you've got uh, what he calls a pushback from from the fabric of space that would manifest itself as a force field which could be interpreted as a modification of New Newtonian dynamics so it it's it's got connections with what was proposed back in the 1980s um, the bottom line is that it, it doesn't work uh, because the whilst you can use mond or a sort of pushback force to interpret galaxies holding themselves together when they shouldn't it doesn't work when you look at clusters of galaxies 
And it doesn't work when you look at the evolution of the universe as a whole. And that's the problem, that these, um, the idea of some sort of material, dark matter, is fully consistent with everything else we measure in the universe, um, whereas modified Newtonian dynamics isn't. And that's why it's largely been abandoned. Although I have to say, and he might well be listening to this podcast because I know he's a listener, one of my colleagues is about to embark on a PhD looking at MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics. So maybe uh, Rob Scott on the Sunshine Coast, uh, Dr. Rob Scott, will be happy to know that people are investigating still this idea uh, that we've, we've, it's our understanding of physics that's wrong, not the fact that there is some material that we don't uh, that we don't see. Uh, so um, yeah, I think it's I think it's good good thinking, and you never know. Um, we will wait to see uh, the end of Peter's PhD thesis in a few years' time and find out whether Mond might actually be the answer. Could be. Thank you, Rob, for your question. Really appreciate it. Now we turn our attention to a question from Kevin Rutherford. Uh, Kevin lives in uh, Macclesfield in the UK, and it looks like he's um, a kindred spirit of yours, uh, Fred. He said, I studied the Michelson-Morley experiment at school and indeed in first-year physics at St Andrews University in 1977, shortly after Fred's time there, yeah, about 70 years before Fred was there. <laughs> Um, after Fred was there. Anyway, briefly, does the LIGO experiment contradict the Michelson-Morley uh, theory? Both experiments used uh, interferometry to detect properties of whatever it is that Earth is moving through, and yet one concluded there is no ether, while the other concluded that space-time can wobble. Is there a contradiction, or was the Michelson-Morley experiment not sensitive enough for its purpose? That's a great question. It's not a, a, a fellow St. Andrews uh, graduate there. Good to hear from you, Kevin. Um, and there's another connection with astronomy there, of course, Andrew, uh, because Kevin's from Macclesfield in the UK. It's in the north of England, so it's pronounced Macclesfield with a very short flat A, I, Macclesfield. Um, it's where the Jodrell Bank radio telescope is, oh. uh, very close to Macclesfield. So that pioneering radio telescope, the UK equivalent of our Parks dish, uh, here in Australia, uh, is very close to Macclesfield. In fact, you pass it on the M6 if anybody's passing that way. But don't look while you're driving because you can easily run into something else rather than the telescope. So it's a quite a long way away. Um, great question. So, OK, um, what is the Michelson or Michelson-Morley experiment? Uh, it's a, a, an experiment using light waves. And the idea was this was performed many, many times in the 19, sorry, the 1880s, from the 1880s onwards, uh, because people believed at that time that there would be something called the ether. And the ether was supposed to be the component of the universe which transmitted light. So, and the analog, of course, is that on, on, our, on the Earth's surface, we hear sound waves because sound is transmi transmitted by the atmosphere. And so physicists of the day figured that you needed something to transmit light waves and suggested that there would be an ether. That was what it was called. It was the raw material of space, if you like, that, that transmits light waves to it. So experiments were done, as I said, starting in the 1880s to try and measure this ether. And what the way they were done was to use this thing called an interferometer. Actually, it's usually called a Michelson interferometer because he's the guy who invented it, mm. um, to show that light 
um, would have different properties in one direction as distinct from another. And why they, why did they choose one uh, two particular directions? Well, one of them is the way the Earth is moving through space. And we know the Earth is going at 30 kilometers per second around the sun. And we also know that the sun is being carried at 250 kilometers per second around the center of our galaxy. So the, the Earth has a motion through space. And so the argument was that this interferometer should be able to detect that. Now, um, if the ether existed, that would be a very, very gross effect. Uh, the Michelson-Morley interferometer would show it up, uh, you know, as though it was being illuminated by a searchlight. It would be very, very obvious in that experiment that there is an ether. Uh, and so um, that's, you know, that's that's why um, we recognized after the Michelson-Morley experiment that there isn't an ether. And it, it what it's what led then to special relativity, because we now know that the speed of light is the same no matter what direction you're going through or you're seeing or moving through space. That's what the Michelson-Morley experiment did, the Michelson-Morley experiment. Now, <clears throat> Uh, LIGO, the Large Interferometric Gravitational Observatory that you and I have spoken of many times, yep. is just a Michelson interferometer. It's the same instrument. Ah. But um, so if there was an ether, uh, you know, the, that, that interferometer would be absolutely overwhelmed by the signal from that, the fact that the Earth is moving through space. But what we're detecting now is just vibrations in space itself, which are at a much, much more subtle level. So... Um, the, the last line of, of Kevin's question, was the Michelson-Morley experiment not sensitive enough for its purpose? Um, the answer to that is no. Had there been an ether, it would have picked it up yeah. uh, because it's a gross effect. But um, it was not sensitive enough by a very long way to detect gravitational waves. They need the kind of exquisite sensitivity that we've spoken about uh, with the Michelson, with the LIGO um, interferometer, which can detect changes in length that amount to one ten thousandth of the diameter of a proton. It's still just staggering stuff. It is. The original Michelson-Morley experiment was nowhere near that kind of sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So there are no contradictions. Um, but um, it's uh, yeah, it's a really interesting question and a good thing to think about as well. It gets me getting my mind back to second year or first year physics at St Andrews. Uh, back in the day, uh, you were wrong actually about it being me being there 70 years before Kevin was. Um, I should tell you that the University of St Andrews was founded in 1413 and I was there very shortly <laughs> after. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, Kevin also writes that he found uh, FW initials in his desk, <laughs> but he's not sure what they meant. Anyway, um, thank you, Kevin, for your question. Really appreciate it. And hopefully you got a bit more of an insight into um, what you were pondering about, which is terrific. And uh, thank you as always, Fred. It's been a great pleasure as always. Thank you to, to you too, Andrew. And uh, we'll speak again soon, I'm sure. We will. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And uh, oh, just a reminder, Patreon, 
facebook.com slash space nuts uh, you can uh, certainly subscribe to the space nuts podcast there if you're an instagram user uh, you can find our parent organization bytes b-i-t-e-s-z-h-q uh, on instagram you can also find us on facebook just do a search for space nuts and youtube as well until next time thank you as always for your contribution to this little podcast and for listening in and we'll catch you in the next episode of space nuts space You've been listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.